We're still continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's called Bodybuilders. And uh, we have arrived to chapter 7 this week. This is the eighth message in our series. We're going to be going over it the rest of the summer. So I just want to remind you, if you're looking for a good summer read, I recommend this book in the New Testament. It's called 1 Corinthians. There's 16 chapters, and we're almost halfway through right now. We're going to be in chapter 7, talking about singleness and marriage. It's interesting how chapter 7 in this letter follows chapter 6. I'm glad that God worked it out that way because chapter 6, if you remember two weeks ago when we were talking, uh, the bottom line message of last week was, or two weeks ago, was honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. And Paul continues that theme into chapter 7 talking about singleness and marriage. You know, there's a trend that has been forming sometime in this country. It's probably uh, true even more so for Europe and Canada, but certainly is a trend uh, growing in the United States now for more than a decade, and that is when people are becoming adults, it's now less and less likely for them to actually get married. People are still looking for love, don't get me wrong. Uh, they're always looking for love, but that love relationship just may not lead to marriage. Staying single versus being married as our, or there's a third category now. So it used to be, well, you either single or you got married, but now there's a third category that's more and more common, and that's just living together, cohabitating uh, the, uh, I guess the slang phrase would be shacking up. Uh, and in fact, what we used to say to our kids when we'd come across couples that were living together, not married, is we'd say, oh, Christine and Tyler, these, these folks, they're just pretending to be married. They're pretending to be married. Soften the blow for them, so to speak. So uh, let's talk about singlehood and marriage in America today. I did a lot of research uh, into statistics, and it, is, it was a little surprising for me, uh, even more stark than I realized how many singles are in America today? 45% of Americans over the age of 18. 45% of Americans over the age of 18 are single. That's 110 million Americans today. 46% of adults under the age of 34 have never been married. Single women now, to, <laughs> this is not, this is, I was going to say single women outnumber married women, and that's true. But single, single women now outnumber married women. I don't know if they outnumber single men. Uh, this depends on the statistics as men and women in America. Uh, but just to, to think about in adult America today, there are more single women than married women out there. Um, although by the age of 40, it says that 81% of men will marry by the age of 40. 86% of women will marry by the age of 40. Don't know how that stat compares to the other, but it's interesting because if it's true that, that almost four-fifths of Americans will marry by the age of 40, that means uh, if there's 45% of Americans who are single, that means that some of them tried marriage and are no longer married. 20%, in fact, this is another stat, 20% of all adults over the age of 25 have never been married. So I, I don't know if they ever do plan or will be married. So that's singleness in America. Let's go over to the other side of the ledger. How about married couples in America? 
Married couples, 61 million uh, couples in America. I'm part of that statistic. Uh, 122 million married people. Uh, Hopefully that means that it's one man, one woman married to each other. Uh, That many marriages, that many couples, if I did the math right. Uh, Here's the interesting trend though. The average age of marrying is going up and up. 29 and a half years now is the average age of a man getting married for the first time. And 27 and a half is the average age of a woman getting married for the first time. And then for those marriages that do not make it the course of a lifetime, uh, the average time in which a couple who divorces stays married is now down to eight years. Now, how about millennials? You guys know the the term millennial, right? The people in our society are approximately 18 to 35 years old. Those who were born from 1983 to 2000. My kids are in this category. Maybe your kids are in this category. 27% of millennials currently are married. Uh, That means almost 60% are single or never married. Um, But the interesting stat to me is if that's true, if so many of them are single, do they want to get married or they, do they want to have children? This is a great statistic of hope, I thought, for our country, for our future, is that 87% of millennials say that they want to have children someday. Now, if less and less millennials are getting married and less adults are getting married in America today, why are they delaying marriage? You know, what are their reasons for either delaying marriage or refusing to get married? Um, They ask basically four questions, and the four questions that they come up with are this. Number one, how do I know if he or she is, quote, the one? The one. As, of course, the, the mentality behind that is there's one person in all the universe that you are supposed to find out of the seven billion people on this planet, and that one person is the one that is chosen for you to marry for the rest of your life. So... If, you don't know, if you're not sure, how do you know if he or she's the one? Second question, how long should we date before we even start talking marriage? I remember my grandparents' generation, they would have stories of couples that knew each other for a month or three weeks or eight weeks or something like that. And the next thing you know, they got married. And I heard the story and I cringed and I say, so, you know, what did the marriage last a year, two years? And they say, oh, no, they just celebrated their 58th wedding anniversary. And you're like, well, how does that even work if you only know that, you know, person for a short time? I think the question or the, the idea behind question number two is that you have to know everything about the other person, everything that you can possibly know so that you can make an informed decision other whether this person is right for you to marry. Question number three is more and more common in this modern generation is should we live together first? I mean, don't you need to kick the tires uh, a little bit before you find out if this is going to go the distance or not? Should we live together first? And that's what's been happening more and more. And a lot of times, question number three leads to question number four. Well, since we've been living together and cohabitating all this time, do we really need to get married? Do we just, do we really need that piece of paper to make this thing legal or not? And so many couples are answering that third and fourth question with yes, let's live together first, and then no, they don't end up getting married. 
Two main questions that I want to address today as we talk about singleness and marriage and as we talk about chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians because Paul talks a lot about this subject in detail for over 38 verses. Um, the two questions are, how do you honor God with your body if you're married? And the second question is, if you choose not to marry, how do you honor God with your body if you are single? And yes, I did add that prepositional phrase, with your body. Because Paul is talking about honoring God with your body. So let's talk about these two questions and jump right into the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's up on the screen or you can follow along in your Bibles in that book, 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul begins the chapter, now regarding the question you asked in your letter. So it, it sort of implies Paul had received a visitation from some leaders in the Corinthian church. They brought a letter with them. And in the letter, there were a number of questions by the Corinthian believers to say, hey, Paul, what should we do in this situation? What do you think about this? What is the right way for a Christian to act in this particular life stage? Okay, so regarding the questions you asked in your letters, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations or, quote, another translation says, to live a celibate life. But because there's so much sexual immorality, in fact, Corinthian uh, city was known for that in the ancient world, to Corinthianize was a, a, even a verb that they invented to talk about the sexual immorality in the city. It says, because there's so much that each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So Paul addresses this delicate question that the Corinthian uh, entourage sent to Paul probably over in the city of Ephesus. And the church asked him a question about sexual relations between married couples. And I think their question went something like this. Hey, Paul, is it okay, let's say that... Um, Let's say that two Christians in the church are married to each other. Is it okay for one partner in that marriage to decide that they're going to be celibate for a time? Which, by the way, I thought to myself, if one of the partners decides to be celibate, haven't they also made a decision for the other partner? Like, <laughs> at least that's the way it works in my marriage. Um, is it okay for one partner in a marriage to decide to be celibate for a time? Perhaps because they have a desire for a heightened spirituality or maybe they have a low libido. Whatever the reason is, is it okay for a married couple to be celibate? And I'm sure that there were some believers in the church who looking around the city and seeing all the sexual promiscuity that was going on around them and thinking, I am a follower of Christ now. I'm, not, I'm supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. So I don't want to be uh, like the rest of the world in this way with all the sexual uh, immorality. So uh, they immediately said, well, then sex must be dirty and being celibate must be a more godly lifestyle than being sexually active even if you are married. So it was kind of like within some of the marriages of the church, it was kind of like this, quote, holiness abstention movement, you know? Um, and so Paul addresses that and he says, all right, let's just talk turkey. And Paul's going to talk very uh, blunt with the Corinthians right here, as you can see in verses 3, 4, and 5. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. 
Do not deprive each other. Wow, there's a phrase right there. Do not deprive each other. Another translation says, do not defraud each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. So in response to this question of the Corinthians, hey, is it okay for a married couple to be celibate? Paul says, absolutely not. It's not okay. It is not good for the man to be alone. If you go back to the creation story in Genesis, God created men, male and female. He gave us a natural sexual libido, and he says there's a proper way to fulfill that in your life, and it's to get married and have a Christian husband and a Christian wife and to have relations with each other on a regular basis. Paul lays down a principle that still works in marriage today. If you want to be single, then you're going to choose long-term celibacy. Fine. If you want to do that, then you'd better stay single if you're going to be celibate. But if you're going to be married or if you choose to marry, then you have a sexual obligation to your spouse. Paul makes it clear that marriage without regular sexual relations, that is uh, grounds for the enemy where the enemy can come in and plant seeds of infidelity and immorality within a marriage. And so Paul says, don't give in to the devil's schemes in this area. Married couples should be having regular sexual relations. By the way, reading Martin Luther, and yes, he wrote a lot about a lot more than just justification by faith. Martin Luther, talking about marriage, said um, he actually... Uh, recommended to his congregation that if they're married, uh, the average or a recommended time of being together uh, for marital relations was twice a week. <laughs> he just spelled it out. Permanent abstention in, of relations in marriage deprives the other partner of his or her natural marital rights. And if sexual activity is interrupted in marriage, Paul says, oh, okay, this couple says you, you don't want to have relations with each other. If you're choosing to do that as a married couple, and, it's usually, and here's the problem, it's usually, not, it's usually not a mutual decision. See, this is the problem in a lot of even Christian marriages that are no longer having regular sexual relations because it's usually one of the partners that chooses to be celibate and the other partner says, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? I think I've been ripped off. So Paul says, if you choose uh, to interrupt sexual activity in your marriage, there must be three conditions. In other words, if it's going to be okay with you as a married couple and with God, you have to fulfill three conditions. The first one is it has to be mutual consent. It has to be both husband and wife agreeing on this, not just one or the other. Second, the condition is it should be for a limited time. This isn't forever. This isn't until you die. This is for a limited time. And if it's for a limited time, the only valid reason that it is interrupted is for spiritual reasons. So they, it says, so they could give yourselves more completely to prayer. And let's be honest, folks. Most Marriages that are no longer uh, uh, active in this way, uh, they're, not, they're not being celibate because both of them are devoting themselves to prayer by mutual consent for a limited time. So this is a way, this is an area in which a lot of Christian marriage couples are being, very, are being disobedient to God and they're opening the door to the enemy and to the temptations for infidelity. And Paul says 
the, the way to remedy that is to return to regular relations with each other. And that's why Paul says in verse 5, stop defrauding one another by withholding sex from your spouse. You're not supposed to cheat your spouse of what is rightfully theirs. That's being selfish and manipulative. And it shows how strongly God thinks about the importance of the sexual relationship in marriage. Okay? So there's enough about marriage, right? I've already dug myself a hole. Uh, some of you might already hate me. But it, it, it's the truth from God's word. And my job is to speak the truth in love. My job as a pastor is to comfort the afflicted. But it's also sometimes to afflict the comfortable. So let's talk about Paul's spiritual gift of singleness. Paul's spiritual gift of singleness. Because Paul's talking to married couples, telling them what to do. But Paul wasn't married himself. Paul's single. And isn't that just like a priest? <laughs> if you want to talk about the church over the centuries to tell married couples how to live their lives. Uh, when that person has not been married. And Paul may very well have been married. Here's what Paul says about himself. But I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, in other words, if their libido is such that they can't control themselves sexually, they should go ahead and marry. It is better to marry than to burn with lust. I remember reading this as a young man. It's one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons why I got married at the age of 21, and I'm grateful to God that that verse was in the Bible. So, Paul was a single person. He was single at least at this time. Was Paul ever married? A lot of people think that he was at one time. Most scholars think that Paul's wife sometime had passed away or that when Paul became a follower of Christ, his good Jewish wife decided not to convert to Christianity and she abandoned him in the marriage. So whether Paul was uh, single by abandonment or single by being a widow, he was a single man. And Paul was saying, there are great advantages in my profession, in my ministry, in being an apostle. Great advantages for me being single rather than being married. And because I have all this freedom to do the Lord's work unhindered and without any other distractions, I think it's great that everybody doing the Lord's work would be single. This is what Paul said. Now, we're going to see later on how the church wrongly interpreted this chapter and made it an obligation now for anybody who wanted to be a leader in the church that they had to be celibate and they had to be single for the rest of their lives in order to be in the ministry. I think that was a big mistake that the church made over the last 20 centuries. In fact, it's still a mistake that's being made, I believe, by the Catholic Church today. So Paul recognized his own freedom and independence to serve Christ, but Paul did not expect all believers to be single. He didn't expect all believers who were presently single to stay single, nor did Paul expect those people who were married to act as if they were single. And this is how it's all been misinterpreted, right? Now, there are some people in the Christian faith, and, and I believe this is a spiritual gift. There are some people in the faith that talked about, talk about this idea of the spiritual gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy, the gift of the, this idea that you don't have to have a spouse. You do not have to have 
uh, uh, one person that you marry and they become your spouse and you have sexual relations with them. You don't need that in your life. So you have this gift from God that is the spiritual gift of singleness. I want to share this uh, brief uh, passage that this one guy who for a time in his life had a legitimate spiritual gift of singleness. His name is Barry Danilik. He was writing an article for Boundless Ministry. And this is what Barry says, talking about himself and his own testimony. He says, over time, questions began to develop in my own thinking. Had God given me the gift of singleness? What exactly was this, quote, gift of singleness? Were both singleness and marriage gifts from God? And was the gift of singleness just for a season? Or was this gift of singleness a lifelong calling? When, as Christians, we talk about this biblical idea of the gift of singleness, we're referring to one reference by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7. And you see it up on the screen where he says, I wish that all persons were as, as I am, but each one has their own gift from God. One has one kind and another has another kind. The Greek word for gift here is the Greek word charisma, and it's the same word used for spiritual gift in the rest of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 12, this whole chapter on spiritual gifts is the Greek word charisma. It's the same word that Paul uses right here, talking about his own gift of being single. Does God sometimes call individuals to remain single even though they, they desire to marry? I believe God calls sometimes, let me say it again. I believe God sometimes calls us to remain single for the sake of, of the ministry to which he's commissioned us. God specifically called the prophet Jeremiah to remain single as part of his prophetic ministry. I don't know if you remember this, but in Jeremiah chapter 16, uh, Jeremiah could still have been a fairly young man because God called him as a teenager. So some years had passed by. He's prophesying destruction and judgment by God on the nation of Judah for their disobedience to the God and for their idolatry. And God specifically tells Jeremiah, do not marry. Do not marry and don't have any kids because Whatever kid is being born from now on, they're going to have a terrible time in life because God's judgment was on the nation of Judah and the Babylonian kingdom was coming as his instrument of judgment. So God told Jeremiah, don't get married, stay single. And, and from what we understand, Jeremiah did that the rest of his life. So back to Barry here, he says, I believe God has called me to be single as a vital part of the ministry life. He's uniquely equipped me to fulfill for his church. But apart from a specific ministry context, I doubt that God ever, quote, calls individuals to remain single against their will. Rather, we should view singleness as a spiritual gift. Look who else in Scripture remained single for the rest of their life. You know, besides Jeremiah, there was Jesus himself. Jesus never married. There was uh, the man that Jesus said was the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, born of women. His name was John, John the Baptist. He was single. He never got married. Um, I know two guys in my life that I've known that were friends for years and years. Both of them, I believe, have the spiritual gift of singleness. They are both super Christian guys. They're dedicated to God. They serve him beyond full time. They both have lots of married friends. They both have lots of single friends. And they're not weird <laughs> it's not like there's this, there's male and there's female and then there's this other person who's in the category. No, they're both men. They're both males 
but they have a spiritual gift of singleness. And they are able to give undivided attention and devotion to the Lord, and they're not burning with passion. So they, they're allowed to be single for the rest of their lives. And they're both in their early 50s now, and I think they're going to remain single for the rest of their life. However, I also have another friend who had the gift of singleness for a time, and then that time came to an end. This is one of my pastor friends named Ed. He's from Southern California. He is a great guy. He's a gifted spiritual leader. If I ever get him up here, I'm going to have him preach. Uh, Ed's a wonderful guy. He was married briefly early in his life. He went into the ministry, married briefly. His wife abandoned him. So his wife left him. He became a single pastor for the next 20 years. And he was an effective single pastor for 20 years of his life. God thought, or Ed thought that God had given him the gift of singleness. And he didn't know how long it was going to last, but he just wrote it out. 20 years passed by, and now Ed was planting a new church, and there was a new lady who came into the church who was a leader in the church, a dedicated servant. She was like the office administrator, uh, second, you know, right hand to what Ed was doing as a senior pastor of the church. Her name was Janet. And Ed began this friendship with Janet. And for years, for like five years, it was, quote, just a friendship. You know, just friends. Uh, until uh, Ed started having these stirrings and these feelings, romantic feelings for Janet. And he found out that Janet started having the same feelings for him. And so Ed prayed to God and he says, Lord, I've been single for 20 years now. Is this singleness a, a gift that you want me to keep doing for the rest of my life? Or is it okay to get married? And Ed uh, said that his testimony was he felt like he got a green light from God, that that gift of singleness that he had for years in his life had now come to an end and it was okay for him to marry. And about eight or 10 years ago, Ed and Janet got married and they're having a great time and a great ministry together. Did not, did not inhibit any one of their, merit, of their ministries. In fact, I believe they were even more effective together now that they're married than they were when both of them were single. So God really has blessed their ministry and they have a thriving church. Now, here's the deal about singleness. Singleness can be a real blessing to God. Singleness can be a blessing to a person because they can give undivided attention to the work of the Lord. But here is a sure sign, verse nine, here is a sure sign that if you think you have the gift of singleness and this is true in your life, you don't have the gift of singleness. In, in verse 36, later on in the chapter, he says, but if a man, he says this, but if a man thinks he's treating his fiancée improperly, in other words, they're probably getting too physical, and he will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes. It is not a sin. But if he's decided firmly not to marry, and there's no urgency, and he can control his passion, he does well not to marry. He does well not to marry. But it's a sign that he says if he will inevitably give in to his passion, that's a pretty sure sign that you don't have the gift of singleness. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, let's switch topics over here. That was about single people. Do they have the gift of singleness? Paul goes back to married people and he says, uh, if you're currently married in this state of life, and there's a persecution going on or uh, because of the present crisis Paul talks about in verse 26. Um, if this is happening in the church, should you stay married? So Paul says this, verses 12 to 14, if a fellow believer has a wife 
who's not a believer and she's willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. In other words, just because your wife isn't a Christian, that's not a green light for you to divorce her. If a believing woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Just because he hasn't yet come to faith in Christ, that doesn't mean you can say, well, God doesn't want us to be married anymore. For the, and here's why. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage. The believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy, right? So there's this influence. There's a, a great potential influence that a Christian spouse can have on her unbelieving spouse, whether it's an unbelieving wife or an unbelieving husband, that the Christian can still have a good influence on their life. Uh, by seeing uh, how you live, uh, it certainly was true in Lee Strobel's case. I don't know if you remember seeing um, that part about the case for the case for Christ, that movie where Lee Strobel was not a believer. In fact, he was an atheist or at least an agnostic. His wife, Leslie, became a follower of Jesus, started going to Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And uh, Lee Strobel was mad. He thought he got a raw deal. He said, how dare you become a Christian? You're ruining our lives. Your lifestyle, your values are different from mine right now. I don't even like you anymore. He was, he was talking about divorcing her. And finally, he was challenged to say, why don't you investigate the claims of the Christian faith yourself? See if it's really true. Is God really real? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Did he really die on a cross? Was he really buried? Did he really raise from the dead miraculously? Is the resurrection of Christ true? If it is, then you also should become a follower of Christ. And so while Leslie stayed in that marriage with her unbelieving husband, Lee, Lee, over the course of a number of years, became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now they have an even more wonderful marriage than they had before she became a believer. So it's, it's the influence that a Christian spouse can have on the husband or the wife and the kids. Because look what Paul says in verse 16. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? As they say, you know, the, the, the slang phrase is, you may be the only Jesus in their lives. You may be the only Christian that they have a friendship or communication or contact with. So when they're watching you, and believe me, the unbelieving person is watching you to see if you're a hypocrite, to see if you're consistent in your Christian walk. They want to know, is, the, is this Jesus that you claim to be so real and transformative in your life, is this real? Do you live it out? If that's true, your husbands might be saved because of you. And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? So hopefully the idea is if you're married to an unbeliever and they're not going to leave you just because you're a Christ follower, stay with them and see if God will use you to reach them for Christ and as well as the kids. So if you can live in peace with a spouse who's not a follower of Christ, Paul says do it. It, you can have a godly influence and the children if, uh, if you have any kids. Now, let's go on. There's two other categories that Paul's going to be talking about. And, and I think 
I think the overall idea here in this chapter is Paul saying, if this is the state where you find yourselves, whether you find yourself single right now, whether you find yourselves married, if you're a Gentile coming into the church, if you're a Jewish background person coming into the church, if you are a slave or if you're a free person coming into the church, whatever state you're in, I think Paul is saying, don't try to change the state you're in unless God calls you to change it. So he, he says in verse 17, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first calls you, called you. This is my rule for all the churches. Now I read this and I think about a slave and I said, Paul, are you saying that if somebody is a slave that says, well, if you were a slave when you became a follower of Christ, you have to stay a slave the rest of your life. That is not true because Paul specifically says, if you can find your freedom, do it. If you are a slave, you know, that's where, where you are in life. But if you can obtain your freedom, do it, Paul says in this chapter. But there's another category and that is, if you are circumcised or not, which goes back to the issue of whether you're Jewish or you're Gentile, if you're a Gentile, uncircumcised coming into the church, you do not have to become circumcised in order to be in Christ. You are in Christ by faith, not because of keeping some Jewish law. So Paul's saying what, whatever state you're in, you don't have to change it in order to be a follower of Christ. What are the advantages? Now, Paul's going to wrap up the chapter, and this is where we're, we're just going to start wrapping it up now. Paul's going to wrap up the chapter by talking about the advantages that a person has in his or her life if they are both Christian and if they are single. And so he says this, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking about how to please him. I think Paul's saying, that's me, that's my life, and this is the advantages I have of being an apostle, a Christ follower, and a single man who's not interested in dating or getting married. He says, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. It's not a bad division, but he says you don't, you don't have the same undivided attention that a single Christian leader could have. In the same way, a woman who's no longer married or who's never been married can be devoted to the Lord and be holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. So Paul's trying to say, I, I'm going to spare you some problems if you are presently single, and Paul says it this way, because of the present crisis in verse 26, if you're single because of the present crisis, I think what Paul was talking about was even if there's not an open persecution going on right now, like there wasn't in 55 AD in Corinth, but Paul as an apostle getting revelation from the Spirit of God could say there is a, there is a persecution coming. And because of that crisis, I would say if you're single you, and you don't uh, burn with passion, you probably should not get married because of the present crisis. Now, this is how the church interpreted chapter 7. Because the church basically said, and this, this is the fallout of what's happened in the Christian and in Christian leadership over the last 2,000 years. What did the church do in their interpretation of chapter 7? Well, first, the first thing they did was they ignored or overlooked certain passages in 
chapter 7, like in verse 26. They overlooked because of the present or the impending crisis as, as remaining single due to persecution and the danger for the Christ followers. So they, they just sort of said, well, we're not going to talk about the present crisis that was going on in Corinth at the time. We're just going to say, we're going to take Paul's words about it's better to be single for the Lord's work than to be married, and we're going to take that as law now. So they took Paul's gift of singleness as the ideal for all Christian leaders and they ignored verse 7 where Paul even himself said, even though I'm single, he says, but each man has his own gift from God, right? And then he said, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So uh, they, they ignored certain other verses in verse 7. And then the church decides to make a law that only single men who take a vow of celibacy or chastity, only those men could be qualified to become full-time ministers in the church, as in professional priests and bishops and cardinals and eventually popes. And if any of you know anything about Christian church history, you know that that law just became a disaster. It became a train wreck in the history of the church because there were lots of men who were becoming priests who did not have the gift of singleness. And they still burn with passion and their sexual libido was strong. And now they're single and they're not supposed to ever get married. And so what do you do with that? Well, I don't even want to go into detail what people did with that. But it was trouble for the church because they misinterpreted this passage of Scripture. Here's the conclusion for us in the church today. For those of us who follow Christ, if... You are single or if you are married, whether you're single or married. You know, here's the, here's the thing, because here, I could see somebody going the wrong way with this. Oh, if you're single and Christian, that means you can be even more devoted to the Lord. So that means that if I'm, if I'm single and Christian and I get married, that means my devotion to the Lord doesn't have to be as strong as it used to be. And Paul's like saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. Whether you're single or whether you're married, you're still supposed to be devoted to the Lord. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he didn't say, parentheses, unless you're married. And then you don't have to worry about it, right? So he's saying, whether you're single or married, we all must live lives completely devoted to the Lord, to God's kingdom, to his service, God gave us marriage as a gift. It's a design to help us to glorify him. It's a design to have a natural uh, uh, place for our sexual drives and, and to keep society uh, in a, a great uh, order and harmony that is going to bless humanity and not harm humanity. I mean, can you just imagine the way this church, can you imagine the way that our world would be if sexual immorality were not a problem in society, right? In other words, if people weren't having sex outside of marriage, if people weren't committing adultery, if there were no child abuse, if there were no incest, if there were no all the different sexual sins that are out there, if none of that was going on and the people who did get married, you know, Christian men married Christian women and they uh, stayed faithful to each other, exclusive and monogamous for the rest of your life. Can you imagine what the society and the world would look like? It just, it would be so different. I think it would be so much better. The model fits uh, the ideal for society. Um, somebody who's married, a Christian couple who's married with kids. Yes, 
Live completely out lives devoted to the Lord's. Take care of, disciple your family, but also seek first the kingdom of God. Because I'll, I'll say one other sidebar comment. I have seen Christian families, uh, you know, husband and wife and kids, where they basically say, look, uh, our job, our main job now is to disciple our kids and our family. My first flock, the husband is saying, is my wife and my children. Therefore, I'm not going to devote any time or effort to the church. I'm not going to volunteer for anything. I'm not going to serve on any team because I, my job is just to, quote, take care of my family. And sometimes that gets abused and you're neglecting the kingdom of God for the idol, and I'm just going to call it out, for the idol where you've taken something and replaced it and put it first place in your life when it shouldn't have been first place, and they've made the family the idol. So, so there is an abuse that goes on of, of overly taking care of your family and neglecting the kingdom of God, just as there's abuse of neglecting your family and spending all your time. Well, I have no, I, I've seen pastors in Chile, gosh, when Lisa and I were pastors in Chile, we had the first marriage retreat four pastors that they'd ever had since the, the gospel began there in the early 1900s. We had a marriage retreat for married couples. Some of the couples said they hadn't been out on a date with each other alone for 20 years. And I'm going, huh? Like, and you're still married? Well, they were still married because they were faithful to God, but they weren't married because they were doing it right. And so we have this marriage retreat and you find out, hey, let's talk about God's ideal. I understand you're seeking first the kingdom of God and you're trying to grow the church and you're trying to build up God's family. All those are good intentions, but do not neglect your marriage. Do not neglect your kids for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it, and it goes both ways. So whether you are married or whether you are single, we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God. How do we take uh, a step closer to God in this vulnerable, sensitive area? Well, this is the way I see it. The best way to describe yourself. This should apply to everybody in this room. The best way to describe yourself is I am, and this is your fill in the blank, so you're waiting all day to, to write these words in there. Uh, this is your fill in the blank. I am a follower of Jesus. In other words, what is the first thing you describe yourself? What is the primary identity that each of us have as a follower of Christ? I am a follower of Jesus and I also happen to be either single or married or widowed or separated. Or is there another category? Did I miss a category? In Sebastopol, I probably did, but um, I'm, I'm thinking I covered all the bases. I'm single, married, widowed, or separated. In other words, don't start with your marriage or single status. Start with who you are as a follower of Christ and then say, oh, well, by the way, and I'm also single or married or widowed or divorced. Okay, um, that's the emphasis is on your relationship with God. If you get married, it should not change the way you love and serve the Lord. In fact, I remember when Lisa and I uh, were getting, we got engaged, we sent out the wedding invitation. It says, believing that God called us together because we would be better together serving the Lord than we would either of us individually. And that, that was the mentality. And so far, that's been true. So it's, it's been a great blessing that you're serving the Lord better together if you're married and you're not hindering each other. So in verse 35, uh, let me say it this way. If, 
Let, let, talk about single person dating somebody. If, if that other person that you're dating, and you, are, you call yourself a Christ follower, if that other person that you are with or dating is somehow hindering or dampering or softening or dulling your passion for God and for involving in his, yourself in his kingdom work, then maybe they are not the right person for you to be dating right now. Maybe they're not, they're not the right person for you to think about marrying. In verse 35, Paul says very clearly, Paul says, so that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Is somebody hindering you from having undivided devotion to the Lord? If that's, if that's the case, they may not be the right person for you, right? You need to rethink that relationship. In other words, they may be, they may be Mr. Right Now, but I bet you for your own spiritual growth and future, they're not going to be Mr. Right. Honor God with your body. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, whether you're divorced, the challenge is always going to be for us Christ followers, can we be content? Can we even be joyful in the place where God has us right now? Paul says, I've learned to be joyful in all or content in all circumstances. Can you be joyful and content in the place where God has you right now? Here's the bottom line. Love and serve God with all your heart in the time and position that he has you in right now. If you're single, love and serve God. But if you don't have the gift of celibacy, continue looking for that right Christian husband or wife. If you're married, love and serve God and love your spouse. If you're divorced, love and serve God. If you are widowed, love and serve God. If you are separated, love and serve God. Do you see the consistency here? The rules don't change. No matter what our marital status is, we're always supposed to love and serve God and seek first his kingdom. And when we do that, then we're going to honor God and society is going to get back into the kind of order that God intended us to have all the way from the time of creation where it's not good for the man to be alone. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. That's how the family structure is supposed to be and that's how society gets turned back around right side up rather than upside down. Will you pray with me? And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed in prayer, Coming before our gracious God, Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask you to help us, Lord, no matter what circumstance that we find ourselves in right now, Lord, help us to be trusting in you. Help us to be content with where you have us in this moment. Lord, help us to find ultimately that our joy is in you. Help us to serve you with all of our hearts. God, if our if our present state is that we're single and we don't have this gift of celibacy, Lord, we pray that for each one of these people that you'd help them find the right person who loves you and who loves your kingdom and whom, with whom they're going to be better with together than they were as a single individual. Lord, we pray that you'd work that out in your way and in your time and help us to be patient and content until that day happens. And Lord, if there's somebody here in this room today and they're not yet a follower of Christ and they've been here and they've said, wow, I, I'm coming to this realization that God's ways are, are, are better 
that living the life following Jesus is, is, is the best way to live. If, if that's where God has you right now and that's where your heart is and you want to make a change and you want to become a follower of Christ, I just ask you to pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I recognize that whatever way I was going in my life or whatever my background, right now I'm coming before you and I want to tell you that I believe in you, that I trust in you, and I'm trusting in your ways and your plan for my life, whatever you have for me in my future. Lord, I'm committing myself to become your follower. So Lord, you lead me. And I believe that whatever commands you give me, Lord, they're going to be to bless me, not to harm me, not to hinder me, not to cramp me in my life, but to, to bless me. So Lord, help me to continue to learn and grow and to trust in you. Lord, we bless you and we thank you for the service. Thank you for uh, each person that you brought here today. And God, we pray that, that we would honor you with our bodies, that we would describe ourselves no matter what our state of marriage or singleness is. We'd always think of and describe ourselves as your children and your family following your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.